0: From KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, a drag theater company puts on a performance of the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Rock Springs, Wyoming.
1: I really hope to amplify marginalized voices in this small community.
0: Plus, we go out on the Snake River and spend a day in the life of local biologists from the Wyoming Department of Game and Fish.
2: We're optimistic that genetics might be able to answer a really long-held question about where these fish all originate from in the system.
0: But first, an interview with local reporters covering this November's election. WIO-files Mike Kojmerl and the Jackson Hole News and Guides, Sophie Boyd-Flegel, joined me in the KHOL studio. Billy Arnold, also from the News and Guide, joined us on Zoom. We focused on the local Wyoming house races and the exorbitant amount of money the GOP is spending to turn the tide in left-leaning Teton County. Thank you all for being here today. I really appreciate you coming into the studio. So Mike, you've recently covered House District 22 for Wirefile. This district includes Wilson and Southern Jackson as well as Hoback and parts of Star Valley. Two moderates, Republican Andrew Byron and independent Bob Strobel are vying for the seat. Could you tell me about this race? Like what what stands out to you and you know why is a publication that covers news statewide focusing on this race in particular?
3: Wirefile is highlighting Uh, what we're just calling legislative races to watch all across Wyoming uh, in the weeks leading up to the general election. Uh, And we're primarily trying to pick uh, districts that could influence kind of the balance of power in the statehouse. And so that race was uh, of interest to us. Uh, Because for one, it's being vacated by the only independent uh, non-party affiliated politician in the 90 person Wyoming legislature, Jim Roscoe, who's on his way out. And it could be filled by another independent, a guy named Bob Strobel, who is one of a record number of either minor party or unaffiliated independent candidates running for office uh, this year. At least I think going back like 30 years, it's the highest number that's ever uh, put in, and it looks also to be likely a close race. Those stories are up on WIFL's website. We actually have a uh, elections twenty two page, and we'll have all those races. So I encourage uh, your listeners to go give that a read.
0: Great, I will definitely be giving that a read. So Billy, you've also been covering some of these uh, Wyoming House races. You also covered House District twenty two, which Mike was just talking about. Um, you've covered House District twenty three. That district includes Raptor J, Alta, North Jackson. That race is between Democrat Liz Storer and Republican Paul Vogelheim. One of the main issues in these state races that I've observed has been abortion and the Republican candidates' stances. How do you see these candidates kind of towing the line between, you know, sticking with the Republican Party while also trying to appeal to voters in a more left-leaning county?
4: Sure. Thanks for that question, and I agree it has been a really interesting issue um, through this campaign cycle. Obviously, the backdrop here is that um, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade um, this summer, the Dobbs decision, basically putting the role for legislating abortion access back in state houses kind of across the country. So Wyoming then passed a bill that was called a trigger ban, um, which essentially um, banned all abortion with the exception for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. That um, ban has since been challenged in court, and that's where it's kind of held up right now. So that's the backdrop on this issue, and it's really expected to end back up um, in the state house one way or another. So it's been an issue that we've been closely following at the News and Guide. And what I would say generally for candidates um, kind of across the ballot and legislative races in Teton County, it feels like it's a um, race to the middle in some sense, or you know, at least a race to um, say you're pro-choice. Um, I think every candidate that I have seen in a legislative race so far has said that, but you know, there's definitely some nuance and gray area to that because some candidates have said that publicly in debates, but you know, a candidate um, like Andrew Byron, um, who's running for House District 22, Filled out a GOP platform pledge back in September um, that and checked a box saying that he supports life um, from the quote moment of conception to the moment of natural death. So those that statement, you know, would seemingly be at odds with the statement that he's pro-choice. Um, he's responded to that in interviews with us and said that, you know, he's emphatically pro-choice. But you know, he's not the only candidate that we've seen have a confusing stance on the issue.
0: And, you know, another story that I know both you, Billy and Sophie, uh, worked on um, was about the Teton County GOP's golden tickets. Will you tell me a little bit about that story and, you know, what you found?
4: So basically what the, the Teton County GOP is doing is they are going around precinct by precinct in Teton County and hanging um uh, election material campaign material on people's doors and in the sort of packets um, they in each precinct one packet that's being held hung on a door is going to have a $50 gift card and a gas card in it we thought that was interesting um, just you know something we hadn't heard of before so we called former county clerk election officials kind of around the state to get their um, you know opinion on how that I guess meshed with um, state election law, and you know what we heard from the secretary of state's office is, you know, I think in their words, they said it was interesting. Um, they hadn't seen it before either, but if they wanted to decide whether it was legal or not, somebody would need to file a challenge against it, um, or you know a complaint that they would look into. And, and to date, um, you know when we're recording this here on Monday morning, nobody has filed. A complaint that we know of um but you know there are election officials in teton county um former election officials um, the main one being former teton county clerk sherry daigle who looked at it and said you know that is a really interesting question it could get um, into the realm of buying votes which is prohibited under state law she thinks it's a fine line one that she's not totally sure that it crosses Um, But she was saying, you know, if she was the county clerk, um, it's something that she would ask the attorneys to look at and you know, for them to resolve. um, It seems like the GOP will be able to go ahead with what um, they're doing. Um, But there are some, yeah, there's some questions there about how it meshes with state election law.
5: I think the most revealing part of this story is just um, the tactics that the GOP is using for local elections is much more active and innovative than what we've seen before. And the GOP, as we've reported before, is flush with cash in a way that the the county Democratic Party isn't. I don't know those numbers. And we've both asked those questions straight up, and we don't get answers of how much is in any bank account. But the county GOP party has been really active with the money that they do have. And this is just an example of how that money is being spent in really creative ways. Some say, some say it's questionable, um, but it's looking like, so far, uh, successful.
3: The more active spending that we're seeing from the county GOP that uh, Sophie mentioned, that also kind of trickles down from what they're seeing on a statewide level. And so the state Republican Party which actually has way less funds to spend on elections, is still vastly outspending the Democrats. Uh, I know that the state Democratic Party is not sending any money to individual campaigns across states.
0: I mean, do you think this spending will account to changing that makeup?
5: I think the money certainly makes things competitive and the aftershocks of this spending will probably be felt for a long time. So even if there's not a legislative red wave in Teton County, uh, a county that voted 70% for Biden in 2020, then we can't necessarily count out the effect of that money on the any grassroots progress that the county GOP is making here.
4: And I think it's also worth pointing out that there are no um, polls, nothing of that kind in Teton County. So the real, you know, bellwether for you know whether any of this money is having an impact is going to be election day and what the voters
0: decide. That was local reporters Mike Kajmerl from Wildfile, along with Sophie Boyd Flegel and Billy Arnold from the News and Guide. Early voting is open in Teton County. Voters can return ballots in person or by mail leading up to the election, or. Vote in person on election day, November 8th. Next up, a drag theater company debuted in Rock Springs last weekend with a performance of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. KHOL executive director Emily Cohen has the story.
6: When 26-year-old theater director Kenny McCormack moved in 2020 to Rock Springs, three hours south of Jackson Hole, he didn't quite know what he was going to do.
1: There was just no opportunities for me (laughs) out here in conservative rural Wyoming, so I figured why not make my own with the community that's come to love me and support me and be so kind to me.
6: Two years later, his dream of creating an inclusive theater company has finally come to fruition. On Friday, October 21st, McCormack's theater, The Starling Company, opened with a shadow cast performance of the cult classic, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. A shadow cast is an ensemble of artists that acts out a movie while it is playing. And in the case of The Rocky Horror Picture Show, dancing and singing live on stage. The trend started in the early 1980s and has become the most common way that audiences experience The Rocky Horror Picture Show in theaters.
1: I've got actors that are in high school. Uh, Then I've got cast members that are in college doing another show on top of this. I've got parents, grandparents. And then we also have a drag queen uh, named Tara Lipsinke. She's a stand-up comedian from Salt Lake. And she reached out as soon as I announced the theater company wanting to be involved. So she's our MC slash usherette at the beginning of the show.
6: One local actor who got involved is 54-year-old retired police officer, Tim Robinson. Robinson landed the lead role of Rocky. He doesn't exactly fit the mold of who one might imagine in a musical comedy about trans aliens. I'll
4: tell you what the first uh, the first try on of pantyhose was was terrible. Ripped the hell out of them. Just I had no clue. Um, the heels they hurt my toes. I got a blister because I wore them around the house for you know a little bit of time. And, oh no big deal. This, I, I can do this. But then when I started dancing in them.
6: It wasn't just the costumes that were a new experience for Robinson. He says that being a police officer was often a lonely job, but that being part of this cast has given him a new community of friends.
4: You don't have a lot of friends outside the job. So the people that you you hang out with are almost always the people that you work with. And it's a really limited, not that they aren't great people, but it's a really limited dynamic. It's really kind of a one-sided perspective of almost everything. So I think the best thing is I've met 20 people that I probably wouldn't have ever met in my normal, you know, pre-retirement life.
6: Rock Springs has a history as a roughneck sort of place. It was settled in the late 1800s when people immigrated from all over the world to work in the Union Pacific coal mines. It became a place where outlaw gangs would pass through, including the bank robber Butch Cassidy. All this is to say Rock Springs isn't exactly known as a hub for the LGBTQIA community. But that's why McCormack says his theater company is so important.
1: I I really hope to amplify marginalized voices in this small community because rural communities like this have been left behind by society, just to put it blatantly. And that's why there is this, this fear because people like me aren't here. Um, and if we are, we're quiet. But if we create this this representation and this exposure, that fear and that ignorance goes away. Um, we have a chance to be stronger as a community and, and get better as a community. And the arts just happens to be a great medium for that.
6: For Joel Jackson, I'm Emily Cohen.
0: you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Merzbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next... We float the Snake River between Moose and Wilson, where the Wyoming Game and Fish Department is monitoring the cutthroat trout populations with electrofishing. The river is a stronghold for the fish, and the department wants to keep it that way. Yellow aspens line the banks of the Snake River between Moose and Wilson on October 11th. The brisk fall day is just one of three days Wyoming Game and Fish Department researchers are spending on the water to check in on fish and conduct population estimates west of Jackson. But instead of catching the fish individually, the crew is electrofishing. This allows them to catch a larger yield and get a bigger sample size. The crew floats down the snake on rafts with what looks like metal antennas dangling off the front. The antennas are releasing an electric field that temporarily stuns the fish.
2: They're held in that field for just a few seconds, and the people on the front have to scoop them up really quick or else they're off.
0: That's Mark Smith, the department's assistant fisheries management coordinator. He explains that Game & Fish's main focus today is on snake river cutthroat trout. The trout's bodies are brownish-yellow and covered in small spots, except for their all-white belly. They're a part of the group known as Cuddies. Cuddies are threatened throughout the western U.S. But this very stretch of water is a stronghold for the Snake River subspecies. And the department is making sure minor habitat changes don't tip the scales. Once the crews collect enough fish, sometimes over a hundred in one swoop, they hand them over to the processing raft in a live cage for measuring.
2: You're taking these to the blue
0: boat? <laughs> The crew fills a cage with water on the processing raft. Then, they dump the fish in.
2: And at that point, we'll take those fish and we'll actually collect the biological data off them, which is largely lengths and weights, which tells us a lot about the age and the conditions in the river.
4: 13.2.
2: .89.
0: The largest cutty comes in at around 18 inches long. That's not as big as what the staff found the week before on the National Elk Refuge's Flat Creek, which is known for its trophy fish, but it's still way above average. The crew also makes sure to make a small clip in one of each fish's fins.
2: We use that to determine when we come back in subsequent days whether we've encountered that particular fish.
0: This year, the crew members end up catching over 1,000 snake river cutthroat trout over three days. They're using the data to estimate the population size in the stretch of river between Moose and Wilson. The results aren't out yet, but the department says all indications look good so far. Fisheries biologist, Clark Johnson, says this shows that the stretch is still a stronghold for wild cutthroat trout.
4: We, as an agency in the area, don't stock. Um, cutthroat trout very many places so all the fish that um, folks are seeing or catching around the Jackson area are likely wild and um, the native fish that's been here forever.
0: Some of the fish had angling injuries including some that looked like they had been caught multiple times. The injury rate is still pretty low but the crew says that over angling may become the largest threat to the fish in the years to come. This is already a problem in places like the North Platte River which flows through Casper. There an internal game and fish study showed that fish with more severe hooking injuries tended to be smaller than those without. Crew said that an injury like this can limit a fish's ability to eat. But the cutthroat and the Moose-Wilson stretch are evading other threats. They rely on cold, clean water, and Johnson says the cool climate in the Tetons has kept the snake from warming like it has in other areas. These conditions have also kept non-native fish from gaining a foothold in the region.
4: Luckily, in kind of the greater Snake River area, those threats are pretty minimal, um, which is great, but the, the same can't be said for some of the other subspecies elsewhere in the state or in the region. At and
1: then
0: back on the yeah, raft, the crew the takes one more step before dumping the fish back in the water to safely swim away. They're taking clips of fin tissue from a selection of fish. They're sending the samples to researchers at the University of Wyoming, who are trying to use genetics, to see where exactly the fish came from. Here's Mark Smith again.
2: We're optimistic that genetics might be able to answer a really long-held question about where these fish all originate from in the system. It might be that they come from many, many places, but it also might be true that there's certain streams or areas of the Snake River system that are critically important.
0: But for now, that research is a work in progress. Over those three days on the snake, the crew caught fish of all sizes and ages. While the young trout might not make anglers jealous, they prove the next generation of trophy fish is alive and well. Jackson's Center for the Arts has a new art exhibit that's part of its initiative to showcase artists from more diverse backgrounds. Colleen Friday is a Northern Arapaho artist and ecosystem scientist. She's also the recipient of the Wyoming Arts Council's Native Art Fellowship Award. Friday's most recent project, Confluence Nonu No Nunuwu, uses beadwork to represent data on geography, water, and the biodiversity of plants that flourish in tribal lands. In advance of her art opening and live talk at the Center Theater Gallery on October twentieth. Friday joined music director Jack Catlin in the KHOL studio.
7: So you've said your artistic discipline and practice do not follow a typical linear trajectory and do not neatly fit into one field of art, that your multiple identities of being Northern Arapaho, a scientist, and an artist are interwoven. A combination of perspectives is really fascinating. How do each of those three identities work together when you are creating your art?
8: when i first was doing sort of sciencey stuff it was very um like going to school it was very siloed sort of like material so um if you were artistic in any way it was seen like a little looked down in a way and i felt like why can't we just combine these two things and make something new with knowledge and science and so what i did was sort of made these two hides. One's an elk hide, and it sort of shows my um, map, my study area for my uh, research I did for my master's um, thesis project. And I love maps. I, like, first was having issues with getting to know maps, and once I figured it out, and I wanted to, like, see it in a different way than than just a paper map, and so I beaded sort of my study area and, like, the trails I took, the water that was in the basins and study sites with like some of the plant data that I had collected to sort of show some of the vegetation in the basin visually. And I think it was kind of a big project to do. And it took me quite a long time to make a lot of like the little circular medallions of beaded artwork. But when it all came together, it was like, wow, it's pretty cool. <laughs>
5: So
7: how does your science brain interact with your creative artistic brain? I'm really curious about when you're working on, you know, you said your master's, your thesis, do you get light bulb moments for your art during those moments and vice versa? Like you're making art and like you start thinking about the scientific, something scientific that you need to do. Like how does that all interact?
8: For me, it was more about seeing like, When I was doing my thesis, you have to do a lot of statistics to get like some of the data or see which plants are more prevalent in the basin. So that was like a way different brain use. And so like I was like, how can I visually transfer this and translate it to like person just looking at it and understanding like, okay, so there's this much grass in this area versus bare ground. So I wanted them to just be able to see a medallion or see data and be really aware that there's more bare ground in that site than grass. It took me a while to nail down like what I wanted to do and which data I was going to use. Once you look at the map and go through the legend, I think people are it's easy for them to understand it.
7: You are the recipient of the Inaugural Native Art Fellowship Award from the Wyoming Arts Council, whose goal is to raise the profiles of the highly talented Native artists in Wyoming and celebrate their artistry. Can you touch on the importance of having Native representation in contemporary art in general and what this award specifically means to you?
8: For me, the representation is important because not all artists, Native artists, are like traditional ceramicists. Not everyone does traditional realistic sort of imagery of people in their tribe or like traditional in a way that is, I guess, realistic drawings or whatever. For me, like not all indigenous artists are contemporary, like doing beadwork very traditionally, but they incorporate different ideas, different ways of creating beadwork, or they use collage or stamping or some imagery that is different. And so that means a lot that my art was selected because it is different. It's mixed media and it's not ledger art. Mm-hmm. in any way so it kind of is nice to have like sort of be the person that represents the more contemporary use of art our practice of art
7: so your collection entitled confluence no Nu no, no woo means where the rivers meet and will be on display in the center theater gallery right outside the window here through mid-december can you tell us about your inspiration for an execution of this particular collection
8: for me it was more just again experimenting Being able to get the fellowship and having extra finance support was nice to start to like use different materials and be able to create new art was really nice to do. Some of it is from previous art show, but definitely like the cyanotype, which is like a sort of photography development sort of process. The imagery is sort of linked to some of the history in Jackson as well as some just general history in the Plains Indian sort of community. And so it definitely is a mixed bag of art that I'm showing, but definitely Mm -hmm. connects in some way. Like they come together through some of the materials I've used, how they come together too. They're connected in some way.
7: So Jackson actually inspired some of the collection?
8: Yeah, I was just researching some of the elk refuge stuff and how there was a conflict and sort of figuring out How do I represent that without saying it literally, you know, like let people walk through and see what they see when they see some of the pieces.
7: Well, Colleen Friday, thank you so much for joining us here at KHOL. Make sure to visit 891KHOL.org for more music news and culture. I'm Jack Catlin and this is KHOL Jackson.
0: That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson.